Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. This is part two of our two-part series on geriatric trauma with Barbara Haas, Burke Tillman, and Camilla Wong. In the last episode, we covered the CABCs, the under-triaging of older trauma patients, some important physiologic and anatomic considerations, some injury patterns, and some decision-making around head and C-spine injuries. I'd like to now move down from the head and neck and talk about chest injuries in the older trauma patient. Now, in young people, an isolated rib fracture is generally not a serious injury, but in older people, a couple of rib fractures can lead to death not so uncommonly. Dr. Wong, could you tell us more about why rib fractures are so important to diagnose in older patients? Yeah, so we know that rib fractures in older adults are a strong predictor for mortality. Um, and even in those who don't die, many of them will go on to developing other complications like pneumonia, respiratory failure resulting in, you know, the need for ventilation. And so these are usually under-recognized, under-treated. There's a lot of pain associated with the rib fractures. And when the pain is suboptimally managed, this also leads to agitation and delirium. And then obviously all the complications that are related to the management of, of agitation. All right. Now, does that apply to both a single rib fracture and multiple rib fractures? Uh, I remember being taught that if it was multiple rib fractures, that's when you really need to worry in the older patient. But if it's a single rib fracture, well, some of those patients can go home. Is that accurate or no? Yeah, I think that's generally true. Um, you know, it is really with the multiple rib fractures, particularly obviously if they have a flail chest, that's even more worrisome. But it is really with the multiple rib fractures where we start seeing a lot of the other morbidity and mortality associated. All right. And let's say we do discover a couple of rib fractures. Dr. Haas, how should we treat that in the emergency department and how are they treated later on in their hospital stay? Great question. Uh, so the first thing I would say is for a patient who has complex chest injuries, so uh, three or more ribs, flail, bilateral ribs, consideration should be given to transfer. And again, every rib that's broken increases your relative risk of death by about 20%. So uh, the more ribs, the more urgently they need to get out and come to a trauma center. What they will get at a trauma center is multimodal, multidisciplinary pain control. So you're looking for a place that has expertise in regional anesthetics, in multimodal analgesia. That might be epidurals, uh, paravertebral blocks, or even PCA. That is packaged together with observation, monitoring in an ICU-type setting, and specialized PT and OT to uh, mobilize them and to mobilize them early, despite the fact that they have these rib fractures. The key is to get them sitting up, get them walking, get them out of bed as early as possible. That's the goal. And it does take experience and expertise of many different providers to do that. So early mobilization is key in these patients. That's kind of your goal is to get them mobilized. 
um, and they do require really multidisciplinary care. But just backing up a little bit, um, and maybe Dr. Tillman, you could you could comment on this: is how should we be treating them in the emergency department when we make the diagnosis? The first thing that you need to do is recognize the urgency of the situation that you're dealing with. This is not a problem that can wait for the morning for the next day. This is something that needs to be dealt with immediately. And to me, that's the number one mistake we make when managing these patients, even in a trauma center where we think this is not urgent. You need to get these patients' pain under control very quickly, and you need to get them sitting up very quickly. So number one, you need to have their spines cleared so they can breathe, and that might involve getting those scans done, examining them, and coming back. The other thing is you need to assess their pain properly. So it's very typical for these older patients to kind of sit there and you say, are you having any pain? And they say no. They need to be able to cough. They need to be able to sit. And they need to be able to roll over. If they can't do those three things, their analgesia is inadequate. And then you need to move quickly to get that analgesia adequately enacted or they're going to get intubated. What does that look like? So that looks like multimodal analgesia in the emergency department. So number one, everyone gets Tylenol at uh, geriatric doses, but they get 650Q6 standing. That's number one. Number two, unless they have an extremely important contraindication to NSAIDs, they need to get NSAIDs in the emergency department. You know, having a history of high blood pressure is not a contraindication. Being old is not a contraindication. Having a creatinine of 150 is not a contraindication because the alternative is intubation and potentially death. So I'm not saying send them home on Advil forever, but you have to give them NSAIDs in the emergency department if you can, even the dreaded Ketorolac. It's okay to do that for 24 hours. You'll check their creatinine tomorrow. They will be fine. Next, you want to give them an order for a narcotic. You need to make sure that someone is asking them if they need it and that they're getting it. So what typically happens is that these are quiet people, you know, there might be a language barrier, there might be a cognition barrier. You look at their at their sheet and they got one dose of Dilaudid at 2 a.m. and then one at 11 a.m. That's not acceptable. Somebody needs to go in and check that their pain is properly managed. If you can't get it managed with those modalities, then you need to think about an adjunct like ketamine for pain. It's not very broadly studied, and I'm certainly not advocating for ketamine for all forever, but in those critical first few hours, I really like using it. The dosing, if you look it up in a book, is 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. Practical tip, if you start at 0.2 milligrams per kilogram per hour, you're probably going to hit that sweet spot for an older adult fairly quickly. You need to get it right in the first few hours. It's like uh, sitting on a stroke. You you don't want to do that. You need to prevent them from going into respiratory failure and getting intubated. And that's very much happening in the emergency department. Yeah, if I may chime in here, I think this also speaks to why there are better outcomes upon transfer to a trauma center. So trauma centers have processes in place to address things like rib fractures in older adults. So at the hospital I work at, for instance, we actually have a dedicated acute pain service with regional expertise where during daytime hours, you can pretty much call them and they will whisk them up to the regional room and do whatever block is required to get the pain under control. They will take them from the emergency department up to the regional room to do this, recognizing the morbidity and mortality that is associated with delays in managing rib fractures. 
All right. So in terms of the goals of analgesia for the older patient with rib fractures, I love that simple rule. You know, they need to be able to cough, they need to be able to sit up, and they need to be able to roll over. And then in terms of your options for getting their pain under control, you start with acetaminophen, move up to NSAIDs, then move up to opioids, and then move up to ketamine. Now, if you are trained to do regional nerve block, which many emergency physicians actually are, then I suppose that's something you can do right off the bat and is probably the best option. Go for it. Uh, that's one of the nice things about having an interdisciplinary team. Uh, surgeons uh, very rarely know how to do those, but you guys are wizards. You just got to get the pain under control. And, and we are trying to minimize opioids in general. So that's why it's important to have a multimodal approach. But if you can do a regional block, go for it. That's awesome. Great. It's interesting because I remember when someone suggested about 10 years ago that they do a, a regional block in the eMERGE for a rib fracture, and I looked at them and thought they were crazy. But now it's all making perfect sense. To me, that seems like it would be the, you know, if it's three in the morning and I have an 85-year-old with a couple of rib fractures um, and I can't get them out for whatever reason, you know, doing an intercostal block seems like a really, really good option. So I would agree with everything Dr. Wong and Dr. Haas have said. I would also like to sort of reference the last episode where we talked about working these patients up. So when, especially when an older adult has rib fractures, think about the underlying tissues from there. So these patients can have pulmonary contusions, they can have vascular injuries, and I can't count the number of solid organ injuries I've seen with low-lying rib fractures. And this is where you get the sort of dreaded, I did the CAT scan of the chest for the rib fractures, and I think the spleen might be injured as well. So this is why I said back in the last podcast, the last episode, if you're going to do the chest, do it all at this point in time, because the ribs break and they go somewhere and the things underneath the ribs get cut. So make sure you look for that because if you can't identify it, you can't treat it. So this may not specifically talk about the huge importance of appropriate analgesia for this patient population, but as emergency physicians, a huge part in treatment of older adults who have been traumatically injured is appropriate identification. And the presence of a rib fracture is just another clue to get some good advanced imaging of the thoraco-abdominal area. Suffice to say that if it's three in the morning and you're at a center that doesn't have 24-hour CT and you diagnose a rib fracture on a chest x-ray in an older patient, you need to get that patient lined up for a CT of their chest and their abdomen ASAP. Just, get, just give me a call as the trauma team leader. If you call me and say, I have an older adult who fell and I see three broken ribs on their chest x-ray, that's because I know how long it takes to get a CAT scan in the community. Just give me a call and let's get into a trauma center because that's just such a high marker of badness having these multiple rib fractures. And, you know, just because every call doesn't result in a transfer doesn't mean you shouldn't make the call. Uh, you might have a conversation around exactly what your resources are, exactly what that patient looks like. You know, other things play into it. If you t if you call me and you say there's one rib fracture, uh, it was a fall from standing, and the fast is completely negative, I'm I'm less worried about a spleen because the fast is negative, and I trust you because you're an emerge doc and you know how to use the ultrasound. 
it's pretty unlikely the aorta's ruptured from a same level fall and you know you're at a big hospital where you can get the CT in the morning I'd say let's see how this patient does but we've had that conversation if you call me and you say you know there's four rib fractures it's going to be 12 hours until the CT patient has underlying frailty and COPD I'm just going to say just send them so there is some subtlety to it you know it would be wrong for us to pretend that every patient with a rib fracture will get accepted but I, I think as the numbers of rib fractures go up and the vulnerability of the patient goes up the benefit of transfer becomes exponentially larger all right rib fractures should scare you in older patients <laughs> There's a niche course, or you might call it a niche course if you live in the U.S., uh, that I'm offering for the third time, which is called Podcast Camp. It's the only comprehensive course specifically for developing your skills in medical education podcasting. We teach everything from pre-production scripting through recording techniques, voice editing, sound design, hosting and posting, the works. Many graduates of the course have gone on to make excellent medical education podcasts. This year's course is a bit different because we want to make it easy for podcast keeners anywhere in the world to take the course. So we're doing it online in three sessions over three weeks in December, and that gives you time to practice your podcasting skills in between the sessions. Tickets are limited to only 20 people, and they go on sale September 23rd. Back to Jerry Trauma. We've now covered uh, head injury and C-spine in the last podcast, rib fractures, and a little bit about the underlying badness that can happen in uh, this podcast. I want to talk a little bit about hip fractures. Now, we see hip fractures all the time in the emergency department. Dr. Wong, why is it so important to get patients with hip fractures to the OR as soon as possible? Because over the last 20 years of practice, I have seen lots of patients in the emergency department for 12 hours, 24 hours, even 48 hours with a hip fracture. It's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, just imagine living with a hip fracture and the pain. I mean, nothing is going to fix that pain better than surgery. And so maybe I'll put another plug in here. So while they're still in the emergency department waiting for the OR, Again, don't underestimate the utility of those peripheral nerve blocks. So certainly, I know a lot of emergency physicians have the skills to do femoral nerve blocks or fascia iliaca blocks. And so while that may not be a life-saving procedure, it is definitely a very important quality metric in terms of pain management. The reason why there is such an urgency to get um, older adults to surgery beyond obviously alleviating their pain is that there have been a lot of observational studies whereby the longer it takes to go to the OR, the higher the likelihood of postoperative complications, 30-day mortality, etc. That being said, there was actually a very nice randomized trial known as the hip attack randomized trial where they randomized individuals to expedited care. So the goal was time to OR within six hours of diagnosis versus usual care, which in the province of Ontario is, if you can believe it, up to 48 hours. But what that study managed to show is that those that received the expedited care to surgery had a reduction in delirium, had a reduction in stroke, and had a reduction in infection, though there was no difference in mortality. So certainly on many quality measures, there is an urgency to get older adults with hip fracture to surgery as soon as possible. 
most of us know how important it is to get patients with hip fractures to the OR as soon as possible for the reasons that you just outlined. But what may be even more underappreciated is the morbidity associated with a missed pelvic fracture. So often I see an older patient who falls, they have a pelvic fracture, they don't have a hip fracture, orthopedics isn't interested in the patient anymore, they get admitted to medicine, but they're put way down the priority list, medicine seeing a whole bunch of other patients, and again, they kind of dwell in the emergency department for a while. Dr. Timlin, how are pelvic fractures in older patients different to those in younger patients, and what should we be on the lookout for when it comes to pelvic fractures? So it's interesting. I've also experienced the isolated inferior pubic rami fracture you are describing. And what we also really want to think is the type of hip fractures that older adults can get. And what we can really worry about is a lateral compression fracture, which can have significant more morbidity associated with it, and the underlying vasculature. So there have been numerous patients with pelvic fractures who are actually able to cause a major vascular injury, be it arterial or venous. So when you're getting this imaging, it's important first to look at exactly what type of fracture it is. The ones that really fall into this category you've described in the anecdote are the unilateral inferior pubic rami that's not displaced. And these people deserve the same diligent care that Dr. Wong described in regards to their pain management and getting them ambulating because it's so important to reduce the risk of delirium and just the harm of being in pain for hours. The other population we need to remember those are the people with displaced pubic rami fracture or all the way up to either the butterfly segments where you have superior and inferior on both sides, which is going to be an unstable fracture and actually can be quite bad, or a compressed fracture where it can start to injure vessels. So it's really tricky because nine times out of ten, it's going to be a unilateral, non-displaced, inferior pubic rami fracture. And unfortunately, you see a lot of these and you can get a little sort of blasé about the potential acute issues, although these can still be significant injuries to a patient. So always take a second to go through, see where the fractures are, and see the force that's been applied to this pelvis and it's actually shrunken in. Because when the volume of the pelvis changes, that means it's squishing or tearing what's inside there. And that can lead to big problems. Furthermore, if the bleeding's in the retroperitoneum, which is where the blood goes from the pelvis, you can miss it, right? Because our fast ultrasound doesn't see it. You're not going to get good signs for a while. You're just going to get this patient who is in like ambulance offload stretcher three for seven hours, who you get a call to stat because now their systolic pressure is 50. So it's just really important to remember the direction of force applied and how it looks like the bones have moved. Lateral compression fractures, more common in the elderly. They're the ones that can have associated vascular injury quite commonly, and they can hide from you in the retroperitoneum. You won't see them on your fast. These patients need CTs. And if they have pretty much anything but an isolated, undisplaced pubic ramus fracture, you really need to think about these possible complications. And again, the goal here 
uh, even if it's just an isolated undisplaced pelvic fracture is going to be to get them mobilized early and get their pain under control early. Beautiful summary. Right, I need to tell you a couple of things about the EM Cases Summit, our mega conference, November 11th to 13th. So virtual conferences have come a long way since the beginning of the pandemic. We've learned a hell of a lot since then of how to deliver amazing, effective CME online. So at this year's EM Cases Summit, not only do you get to watch the brightest minds and best speakers in EM, like Sarah Reed, Aaron Seyal, Scott Weingart, Kylie Booth, Ruben Strayer, Justin Morgenstern, David Carr, and Tarlin Hedayati, that's just to name a few, We'll also have demos of procedures explaining the key nuances for success. We'll have prize giveaways. We'll have morning symposiums for rural EM, for women in EM, and for wellness in EM, and some additional surprises as well. Hundreds of your colleagues have already bought tickets. They're on sale now at emcasesummit.com. So I hope to virtually see you there. All right, now back to geriatric trauma. I want to move on to prognostication and goals of care discussions. Now, there are going to be certain situations where our older trauma patient has a poor prognosis that we might recommend to the family to employ comfort measures only, but these can be very tricky situations. Dr. Haas, how do you prognosticate the older trauma patient? Do you have any tips of how you'd discuss this with family members? It's a great question. It's it's very tricky. I think there's a big balance between not assuming that care for an older adult is futile, which many people unfortunately assume, but also providing dignified care aligned with the patient's wishes in situations where the patient isn't going to have a good recovery. So it's tough. I think, you know, as a trauma surgeon and as intensivists, we have the leisure of time and information. It's much easier to prognosticate at 72 hours uh, than it is when you're in the emergency department. I've had repeat scans. I've had multiple physical exams not clouded by propofol or ketamine. I've had lots of time to get to know the family. I I think the real question is, what do we do in the emergency department, right? I think that's of interest to most of your listeners. I would say in in the emergency department, the most important thing is there's not a lot of difference between a trauma patient and any other older adult who's being put on life support. So the number one predictor about how people are going to do with invasive mechanical ventilation, for example, is frailty. So frailty overrides age, overrides everything in the critical care literature. And so it's important to assess frailty quickly. At Sunnybrook, we actually screened for potential frailty in the emergency department. The TTLs screened for multiple medications, for physical disability and for underlying cognitive disability to sort of help us start thinking that way, but there are multiple tools that emergency physicians can use in the emergency department to screen for frailty. Even in a frail patient, though, unless they really have pre-existing wishes, like they don't want to be intubated, it's very hard to prognosticate prior to imaging, prior to anything being done. So just like if you have a patient who comes in with a bad COPD exacerbation, unless you know that they never wanted to be intubated, you should give them the benefit of life and and benefit of the doubt, intubate them, scan them, and then see what information you have. At that point, if there's an unsurvivable head injury, and 
That means, you know, assessed by a staff neurosurgeon saying this is unsurvivable. That's a conversation to be had. Or if the patient requires major surgery that might not be compatible with their goals of care, that's a conversation to be had. But the truth is, it's very hard to prognosticate early in the absence of pre-existing wishes, severe frailty, or an unsurvivable head injury. And the biggest mistake we can make is be wrong, right? It's not uncommon for someone to get told, your mom's never going to wake up. And then we see them three days later in the uh, ICU sort of giving a thumbs up. Doesn't mean they're out of the woods. They're actually still not going to leave the hospital alive for other reasons. But you can't have a conversation with that family that's going to result in any meaningful consensus when we've gotten it wrong the first time. So if you're not sure, uh, just give them the benefit of the doubt. And it could be sorted out in the intensive care unit the next morning uh, with very, very few exceptions. The bottom line there is, uh, and it's true, again, for most other conditions, not just trauma, but prognostication is very difficult early on. Um, and unless they have pretty clear advanced directives in the first place, these are going to be difficult decisions to make earlier on. And uh, they really need the benefit of time to be able to make those decisions. What an emergency physician can do, though, and this is, again, true for any condition, is not to sugarcoat it or to avoid being clear about how bad things are. So the key phrases you want to use are, this is a life-threatening problem, they can die from this, even if you think they're not going to, actually. The biggest problem is we often underestimate how bad the injury is going to be interplaying with the frailty. So we we forget to say to the family, like, this is really bad, this is life-threatening. We say things like, you know, we're here to support you, it's going to be okay. It's like, nope, it's not going to be okay. <laughs> the other words to use are life support. Like your mom is on life support. It is so common that I meet with a family that's been in the ICU for a week with their loved one mechanically ventilated. And you say they're on life support and the family's like, what? They're on life support? Like that has a real impact on the way we think about things. So if anything, it's not withholding therapy for patients that things are unsurvivable. It's giving sort of a mental preparation time for having that conversation the next day. And you got to say, this is potentially life-threatening. They could die from this, like use the D word and uh, throw in that life support word because it clicks something. And then next day when Camilla or Burke or I have that convo in the ICU, it's not like, well, that nice young man in the IC- in the emergency department said everything was going to be fine. <laughs> It's always a nice young man in the emergency department who says stuff was going to be fine. I'd like to find that jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not so young, so I'm assuming you're not talking about me. (laughs) And we, we all have a script. I literally say, you know, you guys seem like the kind of family that wants me to tell them the truth. And everyone nods to that. And I say, uh, you know, I don't want to take away your hope. We're going to do everything we can do for your mom. You know, age is just a number. Just because she's 82 doesn't mean we give up. But the truth is, this is very dangerous. She could die from this. And we're going to see how she responds to these really aggressive treatments. But a doctor may come see you tomorrow or the day after and say things aren't going well. And I need you to, I need you to tell you the truth because you deserve to know what's going on with your mom, right? So you're giving them hope. You address the ages and that they're all worried about. But you prepare them that someone's going to come and have a really tough conversation with them. Um, and that's key. If you get it wrong that first time, it's you're setting that family up for months of pain, months of sitting at the bedside, and the patient for months of care they may not want. 
Wow, so much wisdom from such young doctors. <laughs> I'm squarely middle-aged, Anton, but thank you for making that uh, not clear okay. on the podcast. <laughs> All right. I want to move on to a topic that unfortunately is quite common and under-recognized as well in, in the emergency department. And we really would be amiss not to discuss this particular topic on this podcast, which is elder abuse. Now, Dr. Wong, my guess is that as a geriatrician, you discover this in hospital long after multiple doctors have, have seen the, the patient You've got the benefit of time and some more information, obviously. What are some of the key clues and risk factors for elder abuse? And how would you manage elder abuse if you were in the emergency department once you discovered it? Right. So all in two minutes, right? Um, so the, yeah. You're young. Uh, I you guess can get first, it. <laughs> right, right. I, I guess the, the first thing is to know that... Um, you know, based on studies in Canada, the prevalence of elder abuse is actually pegged around seven and a half percent. Now, elder abuse can obviously take various forms, right? There's emotional abuse, there's financial abuse. I think the one that you're going to see the most in the emergency department is really the physical abuse. And the estimation is probably around two to three percent based on some Canadian studies. Um, in, in terms of, you know, assessing risk factors, I sort of, I guess, classified into sort of four different groups. So one are, you know, the risk factors that relate to the older adult. And then there are risk factors that relate to the supposed perpetrator. And then there are risk factors that have to do with the dynamic of the relationship between the two. And then the last are sort of factors that pertain to sort of their living environment. So if we took it, take a look at the older person, what we do know from the literature is that older adults who live with cognitive impairment, and particularly if their cognitive impairment results in behavioral disturbances, um, they are at much higher risk for being victims of um, elder abuse, as are older adults who have some degree of functional dependency or um, physical health. The other thing would obviously be if they've had a history of trauma in the past or abuse in the past, that is a predictor for further abuse. Now, if we look at sort of the alleged perpetrator, the risk factors are really when the perpetrator is the caregiver. It's rarely in physical abuse, rarely a stranger. It is most often a caregiver that has a pre-existing relationship and that caregiving responsibility is quite high and there's a high degree of stress that's related to the caregiving responsibility. And then lastly, when we look at sort of the relationship between the older person and the perpetrator, there is often a pre-existing history of some sort of disharmony. And then when we throw in sort of the environmental risk factors is often when there is poor underlying social support. So it may just be the caregiver and the older adult, and there's no one else involved in that sort of relationship dynamic or that caregiving dynamic. So that's what we know. I mean, you can't really solve elder abuse in the emergency department. I know like emergency physicians are like, you know, solution oriented. It really does require an entire disciplinary team, requires social work, psychiatry, geriatric medicine to really understand these risk factors. And it's never black or white, right? Again, these are usually, you know, pre-existing relationships and it may be a son or daughter. And you know, to say, okay, well, we're going to, do you want to press charges on your son or daughter? Often the answer is no, right? There is something still positive about the relationship. And so the management really becomes involving other members of the interdisciplinary team on how to minimize the consequences and the risks. For instance, 
putting in more care into the home to decrease the caregiver burden. You know, having adult day programs, giving certain forms of respite, also empowering the older adult that there are legal options that they can pursue if that was their desire. I think the other thing is also to be aware of, depending on which jurisdiction you're practicing, is when there is mandatory reporting, but not to be blindsided that, you know, mandatory reporting is going to solve, you know, all problems related to elder abuse. It is really about addressing the underlying factors of the individual, the perpetrator, the environment, and then the relationship. Well, that was pretty impressive. That was about two or three minutes that you've explained pretty much everything emergency doctors need to know about uh, elder abuse. Thank you. Just thinking of other clues that might help you identify this because we know we miss it is it's it's a very common habit for us to look at patients' past presentations and be suspicious when people continually present for recurrent injuries. We do know that some people are at high risk for falls, but if a patient has fallen three times in the past two months and it's led to a visit to the emergency department, let your spotty sense tingle a bit there and start to explore that dynamic because you may uncover some of these complex interplays that Dr. Wong identified. So just like past medical history drives a lot of our treatment, their visit history can also act as a clue that there is abuse going on. For those of us who are not experts, I mean, Dr. Wong lives and breathes this, but those of us who are not experts, there are new guidelines from the Trauma Quality Improvement Program about screening for elder abuse and also child abuse and intimate partner violence. So if you just Google TQIP, so T-Q-I-P and elder abuse, um, you'll get a very nice, concise primer to review what Dr. Wong has talked about. I learned a lot from it. And I highly recommend that um, as reading for anyone who provides care in the emergency department to injured patients, both with severe and non-severe injuries. Great tip. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricaid, the experts on scheduling systems. The Metricaid system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricaid know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fill about 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts every month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. I'd like to move on to discharge. Now, many of these patients we've been talking about will be going to a trauma center. Many of them will be admitted to hospital. But let's say you've crossed all your T's, you've dotted all your I's, and you've decided that your older patient after a fall is safe to go home. What are some of the sort of key things that we need to have in place before we discharge the patient? Dr. Wong? Sure. So, so you know, while the early part of the sort of emergency room care may be focused on management of the injuries, you know, the question is always, why did the older adult fall in the first place, right? Because what we know is having had a fall is the strongest predictor of having yet another fall. And if we let them go through the hospital doors and we've never done a falls workup, 
we've done them a disservice because they're probably just going to return back with yet another fall and another injury. So really taking a thorough history in terms of looking for intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors for falls and then separating out which ones are potentially modifiable. I also, you know, I'm also quite curious about the type of injury that they've sustained. So I have yet to do a study on this, but rib fractures always pique some interest of mine because, you know, if we think about how people fall, they usually fall on an outstretched hand or they break their fall with their hip. So how do the ribs get fractured in that process? Now, in my experience, and I've yet to do a study on this, but rib fractures, I tend to see these in older adults who are usually using sedatives. So that impacts their ability or their response mechanism to stretch out their hand or to break their fall with their hip, or they are using alcohol. And so you really, when we look at that older adult who's fallen, we really need to look at these intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors and come up with strategies to manage these risk factors. Every older adult who comes in with a fall upon discharge should also have a referral to home care for an occupational therapy home safety assessment. There's good randomized trial level evidence to show that this intervention reduces the risk of subsequent falls. And then also, if they are willing and able to participate, also a referral to a comprehensive falls prevention program in the community, which not only involves, you know, ascertaining and managing risk factors for falls, but also exercise programs that are geared towards gait and balance training. Then the last thing would be is to make sure that there's clear communication with the primary care provider to assess for conditions that put them at higher risk for not just falls, but injurious falls. So things like screening for osteoporosis with a bone density and careful medication review. All right. So at the very minimum, patient who's fallen, they're going back home. You want to set up OT, fall prevention program if you have one, and make sure their primary care physician knows that they've fallen and to suggest a a workup for osteoporosis. Excellent. We're nearing the end of the podcast now. The last question I have, which I often ask at the end of my podcast, is what do you think the future holds in the next, say, 5 or 10 or 15 years for geriatric trauma care? Dr. Haas, let's start with you. So I think we're going to need to rethink what trauma care is. You know, it's like saying, what's the future of geriatric pneumonia care? Most patients who get pneumonia are older adults. 40% of our severely injured patients are already older adults. So this cannot be some sort of vague subspecialty uh, taken care of by only a few people. All of us who provide injury care will have to become adept and comfortable providing care to older adults. We don't have enough geriatricians in the world. We know that geriatrician involvement on a routine basis at trauma centers reduces complications, improves discharge outcomes, and has lots of benefits. But they can't see every patient and they can't see every patient before badness happens. So we need to, as a community of emergency physicians, trauma surgeons, other subspecialty surgeons, focus on those first 72 hours and be comfortable providing routine care, which means identifying patients who need to go to a trauma center, being facile with analgesia, recognizing what senior-friendly care looks like. You don't need to be a geriatrician to take out a Foley put a patient in a chair, give them their hearing aids, their glasses, and a glass of water. That should be something we all do. We shouldn't have to need a geriatrician to tell us how to reduce delirium. We should know how to do that. And we need to accept responsibility for these tasks and recognize that people love trauma because it's life-saving. You know, it's so cool. It's so sexy. We did this great 
you know, to save the life of an older trauma patient uh, takes a different set of skills, but it needs to become just as rewarding to do those things as to do an ED thoracotomy. You know, a life saved is a life saved, whether the patient's 20 and you got covered with blood from head to toe, or if the patient's 80 and you did it by mobilizing them early and uh, connecting with their family doc. So we need to all take responsibility for, for senior friendly care. Wow. Incredibly eloquently said. Uh, and Dr. Tillman, your uh, vision of the future of trauma care for the older person. Well, first, I'm so glad I get to follow Dr. Haas's answer. I don't think I'll ever be as eloquent <laughs> as her. But I well, think maybe we'll have to we'll have to edit it so that Dr. Haas is right yeah, at the end. About this. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> so I think there are a couple key developments that I hope to see happen. One is changing the heuristics around trauma and understanding that older adults have traumatic injuries too. And they need to be treated just as aggressively as any patient who suffered a severe trauma. So I think the first major change in trauma care is appreciating that this happens. I think that would be a huge step in just the way we think about trauma care, just evident by how much under triage there is. And then I think the further evolution is a change in the way we provide their early care in the sense that there is so much of the hospital is deliriogenic and mobility limiting and putting a new focus as trauma care involves on mobilizing patients, treating their pain and freeing them up so that we can minimize these downstream complications. So those are really the two big evolutions I see. One is a change in how we view the traumatically injured patient and who is traumatically injured. And two, focusing early treatment on not being bed bound. It's like when you think of STEMIs 60 years ago, oh, you had a heart attack, lie in bed for three months and you'll get better. Clearly not a good approach and we've moved beyond that. And it is my hope and that's sort of what I see happening with trauma care where it's not collar on, lie in bed, don't move, your ribs will eventually heal to hear some great analgesia Let's get you up and moving and to people who are going to give you compassionate and patient-centered care around exactly what is specific to you as the individual. Excellent. And Dr. Wong, any visions of the future for care of the older patient with trauma? Yeah, so I think it's really that early attention to the integration of geriatric principles into trauma care. The good thing is that what looks like good quality care for older adults, well, guess what? It actually is good quality care for all adults. So we really do need to redesign our systems because it benefits everyone. And I think the last thing that we should also move towards is really involving older adults in that redesign. Here we are, a bunch of, I don't know, young midlife <laughs> physicians thinking what we think may be what older adults want. But I think we actually need to now really ask them and integrate their thoughts into how we should redesign trauma systems to meet their needs. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wong, Dr. Tillman, and Dr. Haas. You know, I work at a big community hospital that sees a lot of older adults at, at North York General, and I thought I had a pretty good understanding of geriatric trauma, but this podcast was a real eye-opener for me. I hope it's a, it's a real eye-opener for, for the listeners as well. 
I, for one, feel already a little bit better equipped to manage the older trauma patient. So thanks so much for your expertise on this. Thank you for having us. This was great. It was a lot of fun to be back. Uh, So thanks again for inviting me in. I'd like to come back in 10 years and show how we've uh, improved the system. All right. It's a deal. (laughs) 